Welcome to Ill-Equipped History, where two best friends talk about history and just have a good time. <laughs> yeah. How are you doing, Emma? I'm doing great. Ankle's still messed up, and we're doing great. <laughs> Everything's fine. Everything's fine. I am the meme with the, is it a dog sitting at a kitchen table and everything's on fire around them? Mm-hmm. Everything's fine? This is fine. <laughs> I would like to say that I have been scooting my leg on, uh, you know those rolly stools mm-hmm. in garages that mechanics work on? My husband <laughs> has one in the garage and I've been rolling my leg on it because I'm too cheap to spend $100 <laughs> on one of those knee scooters. So, <laughs> Well, hey, you know, if it works, it works. It does get stuck on the tile, but we're living. It's fine. <laughs> How are you, Morgan? I'm good. Um, I'm going camping tomorrow, so that's going to be fun. Yay! Um, hopefully I don't just pass away in this heat, because I don't... Do not. <laughs> uh, I cannot do this podcast alone. <laughs> <laughs> and for other reasons. <laughs> but the podcast. But the no. pod. Like, I just don't handle heat very well, and I'm trying to tell Kyle that, um, and he's just like, well, you just need to get over it. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> no, he's a lot more I'm nice s- than that, but. Listen, I'm slightly asthmatic. If I get too hot, I just, like, lay down, I'm like. <gasps> <laughs> I just get real grouchy, and I was like, because we're going with some friends, and he was like, they're going camping, and I'm like. I'll go, but I'm going to complain the entire time because you know of the heat and the bugs. You know what you should do? <laughs> drink some IPA. Oh, I should drink a nice crisp IPA. Crisp. crisp. Or a wheat. <laughs> wheat. Wheat beer. Wheat. Um, all right. All right. So it was kind of, I kind of had to think about the skit I was going to do today because the topic we're talking about today is so batshit insane that I was like, what, how do I even introduce this? Because literally every time I kept looking into it, I was like, what, what? And it's not a funny story, but it is batshit insane. So without further ado, let's just jump into our skit. Introducing the new miracle drug, Parvitin. Contained in a small, easy-to-swallow pill, it'll put pep in your step. Don't take my word for it. Listen to these true, first-hand testimonials. I can study for hours and not get tired. I have the energy to clean my entire house every day. I used to be sad all the time after my wife died, but now, with Parvitin, I have a smile on my face every day. Try Pavitin. This fun little pill is so nice, we merged with Hildebrand to make special chocolates the ladies will love. I eat three chocolates, and I can finally handle all my kids living in my house. Pavitin, used by our armed forces with your approval. Try Pavitin today. Pavitin, the stimulant for the mind and body. Thanks for giving me that line about the kids. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I do and love you my know children. What? If it had been nineteen late nineteen thirties Germany, you'd probably be all over these chocolates. I'm just gonna say because they Listen, made you feel real good. I love chocolates. Good. 
And I love drugs. I'm just kidding. Don't be drug kids. <laughs> and by drugs, I mean the vitamins I take every morning. <laughs> Which is funny because vitamins are actually a big part in this story. Mm. As are drugs. So... Uh, today we're going to be talking about drugs in the Third Reich as the Nazis were coming into power up until the end of the war. Like I said, this is completely bat shit crazy. I had no idea. And a lot of people really don't know about the extent of drug use in Nazi Germany in the 30s and 40s. So my big resource that I used that I... It's, I kind of ended up doing more of a book report because my main source was this book called Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich by Norman Oler. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. Uh, Mr. Oler did an amazing job with his book. He did boots on the ground research. He interviewed doctors, survivors from World War II. He went to the National Archives in D.C. to try to find handwritten notes from Hitler's personal physician he like really put in the work for this book and it's a, a fun read it was very interesting he tries to put in humor when he can even though it's really not a funny story he tries to add humor when he can and it's very interesting because the he actually wrote the book in german and it's trans the english version's trans i cannot talk english <laughs> version is translated but, and I feel like a lot of that humor still comes through. And I'm really mad because it took all the best puns that I could have used. Um, like one, so the book is separated into like three parts. And one of the parts is called Sieg Heil. Um, and then another part is Hi Hitler. And I was just like, well, those are the two best puns and they're already taken. So give me a little bit. I'll think of another one. Thank you. You're welcome. I highly recommend it because I don't go into all the details in this book. I really just kind of cover the high points and really just focus on the drug use. But the book goes into more detail about the different people involved, um, different events in the war. Also, I'm going to put a mass trigger warning prior to getting into the details of the episode. There's drug use. There's some anti-Semitism that I'm just going to briefly touch upon. Uh, the Nazis. Big trigger. That's a trigger for anyone. Yeah. Uh, there is murder and death and suicide in this book. At the very end, there's going to be mentions of human experimentation and deaths of children. So not a fun, happy story. Uh, it's just bat shit insane. So are you ready to get into it, Emily? <laughs> Put my roller coaster harness on. <laughs> Got it. All right. So... Our first part we're going to talk about is the pre-war drug use. So our story starts in the early 1800s when a pharmaceutical assistant named Friedrich Wilhelm Saturner isolated morphine from opium poppies. And it spread like wildfire all over the world as anesthesia and a powerful painkiller. In 1827, Emanuel Merck founded the Merck Company, which is still a major pharmaceutical company today. Uh, it assisted in the dispersal of morphine worldwide when injections were invented in 1850. So we're just hitting the ground running. Morphine being used worldwide. I'm sure most people have heard of morphine. It is a very powerful opiate used for pain relief and an anesthetic. So cocaine began to be commercially used around this time as well. 
and it was widely available over the counter as a local anesthetic and, you know, used in soft drinks like Coca-Cola in 1886, you know? So, I mean, again, it's just boom. And, I mean, humanity, like, last week Emily talked about, you know, beer. Humans have always used mind-altering substances to get through life, and drugs are no different. Cocaine is actually used, um, I think it's even still used today as like a numbing, like a topical anesthetic, and it provides numbing sensation to like your skin. So in 1897, aspirin was invented by a man named Felix Hoffman. He was a chemist working for the Bayer Company, which is still a major pharmaceutical company today. These are all, this is all in Germany. 11 days later, he invented heroin. Oh! So it is just boom, boom, boom. Like all of this is in the 1800s. Aspirin and heroin. Yep. The same man. The same man invented aspirin and heroin. And heroin, the book said it was the first designer drug. So at this time, you know, all of these drugs are coming out of Germany, being invented there, coming out. Germany was a gold standard for drug production in the 19th century, especially after World War I. In 1926, Germany was the main producer of heroin and morphine. Uh, 40% of morphine produced worldwide was produced in Germany. Jesus. And pirates in China were actually selling counterfeit Merck cocaine. So they were like getting bags of cocaine, writing Merck on it and saying, this is Merck cocaine. Yeah. It's wow. a lot. Already, like I'm only five bullet points in <laughs> on my eight page notes and it is already batshit insane. Is it not? <laughs> I don't even know what to say right now. Okay. We are hitting the yeah. ground running with drug use. So, you know, we know World War One. Right. Uh, Germany was in a bad place after World War One. Yeah. Uh, a comedy economy crashed and people turned to the numbing effects of drugs mm-hmm. to help them cope with just the shit of it all. Yes. Drug use was rampant, especially in Berlin. The book says 40% of doctors were addicted to morphine. Oh, my God. And you could buy drugs on any street corner. Uh, there is an actress named Anita Berber. She, well, she's an actress and dancer. She dipped white rose petals in chloroform and ether and would suck on them for breakfast. <laughs> like, so much drugs. I'm so stressed I have no words. <laughs> well, you're about to be more stressed out. <laughs> oh, God. So, okay. enter the Nazis. Okay. When the Nazis started coming into power in the early 1930s, or sorry, I skipped a, a line, sorry. In the late 1920s, the National Socialist Party, a.k.a. the Nazis, started coming into power. As they grew, they vocally denounced drug use. Instead, they gained momentum using social means of achieving those effects with events and rallies. So they were like having rallies and events that were hyping people up to kind of mimic that effect that drugs provided. And when you're in the right social setting, like, you don't need drugs to get into the kind of that frenzy. Yeah, just think about you at a at a concert, like at a really um, amped up concert. Like you don't you don't need drugs to necessarily experience that euphoria if the social environment is right what it needs to be. And the book said, quote, they hated drugs because they wanted to be like a drug themselves. Mm -hmm. So the Nazi party was trying to become a drug in the German people's lives. So the Nazis started heavily regulating drug use and alcohol and tobacco. They would try to treat drug users initially, but then they would also look at like your hereditary predisposition Mm -hmm. to use drugs. 
Mm-hmm. And if you are found to have a hereditary component in drug use, they would send you to a concentration camp. So it was the German people who were first being sent to concentration camps. Right. Um, and then eventually they started sterilizing drug users. <gasps> and then eventually started euthanizing drug users. Like it, they were exterminating drug use um, among the populace in Germany. The anti-drug campaign soon merged with a lot of anti-Semitic statements, with the message being sent out that the Jews were trying to poison the good, innocent German people, especially the children. And the book mentions, like, there's, like, books and propaganda that came out that was like, the Jews are trying to drug the children with mushrooms and stuff. Like, it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. Oh, my God. But they combined both, like, of their big topics at that time into one message um, and it was very harmful to innocent Jewish people who yeah. were not on drugs or even if they were they weren't you know right like drug users don't deserve to be euthanized absolutely not or sterilized it, or any of that right and it, and when that's combined with a violence that the Jewish people experience it just it was not a good situation oh. in 19 no Yeah, 1937, Dr. Fritz Hosschild, he was a head pharmacist at Temmler Pharmaceutical Company. He had found a recipe that Japanese, the Japanese, excuse me, had come up with in 1887. Mm -hmm. And he expanded upon it and formed a drug called Pervitin that was mentioned in our skit earlier. The main ingredient in in Pervitin is methamphetamine. Yum. So... We have all heard of methamphetamine, but what does it actually do to your body? Meth increases the dopamine in your brain, and dopamine is a reward chemical. It's a neurotransmitter that allows us to feel pleasure. Uh, Meth boosts the dopamine in your brain, um, and so you will very often experience feelings of euphoria and intense pleasure. Uh, You also get feelings of confidence, wakefulness, and energy. One feels like they don't need to eat or sleep while they're on meth because they're just happy. Like, who needs to sleep? Who needs to eat when you your brain is just so full of dopamine? And there's even been studies where they have hooked rats to, like, a dopamine. Like, they had a, a wire hooked to the dopamine center in their brain, and they could push a button to either give them food or a button to release dopamine into their brain, and they will hit that dopamine button until they starve to death. Oh, my God. Like, it, dopamine is a very, very powerful chemical in your body. Yeah. The effects of methamphetamine typically are long-lasting. They can last more than 12 hours, depending on the dose. The negative side effects are pretty severe. So you get tend to have feelings of depression, fatigue, and cognitive disturbances. And that's just, like, when it wears, like, a dose just wears off. Right. Long-term effects of continued meth use include extreme weight loss, dental problems, anxiety, confusion, actual changes in the structure of your brain, itching, memory loss, sleeping problems, violent behavior, paranoia, and hallucinations. Uh, And so the combination of the positive and negative side effects would have people want to continue to taking Pervitin because you got such an intense high but the lows were so low that you don't want to feel those lows, so you keep taking it. Right. And that's why it's so addictive, plus with the dopamine. Meth is extremely addictive. Don't do meth. <laughs> Just don't. don't. It is not Don't do worth drugs. It. Just don't do drugs this, in general. This entire episode is an anti-drug episode, <laughs> I'm just saying. This is what um, <laughs> D.A.R.E. should have been. 
it's you'll definitely not want to do any of these drugs when I'm done talking about them because it not, none of it's good. No. Nope. So Pervitin comes onto the market, spreads like wildfire across Germany. All sectors of the workforce began using Pervitin regularly. Nurses, writers, students, doctors, factory workers, firemen, actors, truck drivers, housewives, etc. Everyone began using Pervitin and productivity across the country skyrocketed. Pervitin was even used in chocolates. A brand called Hildebrand started making meth chocolate, and each portion had about five times the dose of meth than a Pervitin pill. And the recommended dose of the chocolates was three to nine pieces. What? <laughs> oh my god! This shit was crazy! So you're... This shit was crazy. Okay, so you if you had three chocolate, and it's five mm-hmm. times the amount of one Pervitin pill. Mm-hmm. You're taking, like, I think it said how much was in a Pervitin pill, but I think each Pervitin pill is, like, three milligrams or so, oh maybe one God. milligram. So, yeah, you're taking a lot of meth. Oh, my God. And the people who started taking Pervitin saw increases in mood, attention, confidence, and performance on IQ, IQ tests and energy. And there are overall decreases in sleepiness, weariness, and depression. So at the time when Pervitin was released on the market, like, this was seen as the wonder drug, you know? Right. This was seen as a miracle drug that, like, was boosting the country. You know, like, Germany was going to be great again. And it's all because of this pill. So there is a quote from the book that says, quote, when the Nazis took power, there were 6 million unemployed and only 100,000 poorly armed soldiers. By 1936, in spite of a continuing global crisis, almost full employment had been achieved, and the Wehrmacht was one of the most powerful military forces in Europe. Um, And I did look up pronunciations of things, so I hope I did things right. The Wehrmacht was the armed united forces in Germany. That included the Heer which is the army, the Kriegsmarine, which is the navy, and the Luftwaffe, which is the air force. So the Wehrmacht is the entire, like, military. Okay. Like, on top of Pervitin being used to boost the mood and morale of the people, the Nazis look like they're actually changing Germany for the better. Like, everyone has a job. We have military might again. Like, we can do this thing. The Wehrmacht and Pervitin. Mm-hmm. Uh, to talk about the Wehrmacht and the use of Pervitin, we have to talk about a man named Dr. Otto F. Ronke. He was a director of the Research Institute of Defense Physiology, which targeted the biological and physical effects of war on a soldier's body and how to combat that. So he was in charge of identifying like what causes like fatigue or illness. And how do we fix that? Mm -hmm. And the book even mentions, like, that was his greatest enemy, was combating fatigue. Because if a soldier is fatigued, they're not making good decisions anymore, they can't keep going, you know, like, if you can combat that, like, you have basically a perpetual machine. Right. So he performs a study looking at a bunch of different stimulants. So he uses Pervitin, caffeine, benzodrine, which is another amphetamine, and placebos. And, And... Fun fact that the book mentions Benzedrine was actually considered a legal, illegal, a legal doping agent in the 1936 Olympics. The Americans were on Benzedrine when they competed. Oh. So, 
but it is an amphetamine. It's no longer legal in the Olympics. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, but it is, it is a stimulant. His findings concluded that pervitin kept people awake, but did not increase intellect. And in his words, I was ideal for soldiers. So they would stay awake, they would keep following orders, but weren't going to question those orders. They weren't going to get clever or creative. Oh, that's which is even shittier. What, yeah. No, I agree. But that's what yeah, I know. people yeah. in the military want in a soldier. So any questions so far? Because it's about to get real wild. No. Okay. Well, if you have any questions, just stop me. Okay. I, there's a lot of information I, about I to think be I'm thrown grasping. at your head. I think I'm grasping okay. so far. Okay. Lots of drugs. Lots especially of drugs. meth. So shortly after his experiments, Franke learned about the dangers of Pervitin after medical students began overdosing. So they would, like, take a bunch of Pervitin to stay awake to, like, study for exams and stuff. And then they were overdosing. So he tried to forbid it at the military academy that he was researching at, but didn't work. Uh, Pervitin was about to be dispersed to German troops at an unbelievable scale. So the use of Pervitin was recorded in the attack on Poland on September 1st, 1939, which is considered the start of World War II. Mm -hmm. The book says, quote, in every aspect of the attack, which led to the deaths of 100,000 Polish soldiers and by the end of the year, 60,000 Polish civilians, the drug helped the aggressors to work without any sign of tiredness until the end of the mission, end quote. Oh, my God. So the soldiers were taking Pervitin, and it took away their inhibitions, it took away fear, and they were just able, and it increased their aggression. And so they were able to perform more violent acts against Poland as they invaded. So Britain and France declared war on Germany on September 3rd, 1939, so two days after Germany invaded Poland. Mm-hmm. Despite what propaganda said, the German military was inferior to the British and French armies. Those two were considered the best armies in the entire world. The Wehrmacht would have to use a different tactic if they were going to have a chance against those superior military forces. Around this time, Ranka tried to get the use of Pervitin under control and to try to regulate it. Like, I think the book said he came out with, like, a little brochure and it was like, this is how to, like, take it safely and not overdose. And the military was like, yeah. We don't care. <laughs> and it's so strange. Like, he also took it daily and ignored the negative side effects that he himself was experiencing. He stayed awake for 48 hours at a time regularly. Regularly? Regularly. Like, he would, like, stay awake for four days, sleep a day, stay awake for four days, sleep a day. And, like, he was just completely ignoring the toll it was taking on his own body. But he was like, I need to regulate it for the soldiers, but he wasn't paying attention to what it was doing to his own body. It's so stupid. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. No. So in the fall of 1939, the Reich Healthier Leo Conti became aware of the rampant countrywide drug abuse of Pervitin. So this is the only guy in this whole freaking story that's like, this is not good. Like, period. Yeah. So <laughs> he, his he tried to get Pervitin outlawed from Germany. It didn't work. So the next thing he could do was make it prescription only. Okay. And cited that the Nazi, cited that Nazi, that previous Nazi war against drugs. You know, he's like, the Nazis are against drugs, but here you guys all are taking the drugs. So I'm at least going to make it prescription only so it's harder to obtain. Right. It wasn't. Um, doctors and pharmacists just 
ignored the decree on prescription only or would just write prescriptions for people as needed or wanted. And then the military continued its usage as well. So according to the book, the Wehrmacht became the first army in the world to be dependent on a chemical drug. Oh the Temmler factory, which is where Pervitin originated, was in charge of fulfilling the orders for the army in the Luftwaffe. 35 million tablets were ordered at the start of the war. 35 million? The factory can make 833,000 tablets a day. Oh my God. Like they were mass producing this shit. Oh my God. And soldiers were just popping them two, three, four at a time. Now, I know like it seems like I'm just zooming through the war, but I'm not really focusing on the war itself. Mm -hmm. I'm more like kind of following the events that happen in the book and how drugs specifically related to certain events. But there's so much more to World War II than just what was in this book. Right. Again, it's more just focusing on the events that occurred related to drugs. Right. Changing gears, now we're in 1940. We're going to talk about the Blitzkrieg. Okay. The Blitzkrieg was not, it's not a formal military technique. This was kind of invented by the use of drugs. But Blitzkrieg was more of a military tactic that was just haul ass as fast as you can through enemy territory. That's basically what Blitzkrieg was. Okay. But the first major use of Blitzkrieg was in May 1940. So the German army launched a decoy attack on the Belgian fort Eben and Mail, which was in the north. So this decoy attack led Allied forces to believe the Nazis were going to attack the north of Belgium, when in fact they were actually going towards Luxembourg, which is in the south. So they're pulling a sneaky. They had to cross the river Meuse and make it to the French city of Sedan before the French army did. Okay. And they, so there was a general named Guderian who was leading the, this panzer division. And the panzer division is just a group with tanks. Um, it had, there's infantry and other, but it's led by tanks. Uh-huh. Guderian's troops had to make it to Sedan before the French army did. And they did not know that Guderian's troops were where they were. So the soldiers all took the Pervitin and launched forward, steamrolling their way through the night to the community of Martelange. The Belgian soldiers were take, that, that were stationed there were taken by surprise, and they retreated because they were like, holy shit, these guys are hauling ass. <laughs> like, it scared them, and so they <laughs> yeah. all retreated. Bye. In three days, the division made it to the French border, and I was trying to, I tried to find videos on, like, mapping the Blitzkrieg and like how, cause I don't know how far away these things are. I tried looking on a map. It doesn't make sense to my brain. I, re- I did try. They like marched through the night. Like they did not stop basically. Oh they didn't stop to rest. They didn't stop to sleep. They just hauled. For three days? Ass for three days. The French army arrived way too late and continually, continually reacted too slow to the German onslaught as is continued. So General Guderian basically, like I said, invented the Blitzkrieg, which was fueled by methamphetamine. The book states, quote, in less than 100 hours, the Germans gained more territory than they had in over four years of the First World War. So Guderian was unstoppable. He literally went so fast through the Belgian and French countries. He didn't even have flanks, like as they were moving, he didn't have flank protecting his onslaught because they were so fast. Like literally the enemy could not catch up to them 
because they never stop. They were just running. Basically, like I said, hauling ass. Oh my God. As soon as they would come upon like a town or a village, they would capture it, shoot whatever existing military was there, defeat them, and keep going. Like this, it was very, very destructive. Guderian was told by his superiors to stop and he did not. Like he became completely insubordinate and just kept hauling ass. Like, oh my he God. Flew through Europe at this point. So there's another general name. You know, that's got to say something. If your superiors are like, bro, you need to chill out. And he's like, no. And he's just like, no. No. And it happened again with a guy named General Rommel. He led the 7th Panzer Division, and he was doing a very similar tactic as Guderian. But he, from what I could understand, so they were doing this maneuver where Guderian was going south, and Rommel was going to go north, and they were going to encircle the Allied troops and cut them off from the Atlantic Right. in France. So they were doing like a whole pincer move to trap the Allied forces. So Rommel was also told to stop and did not. Like, he was also hauling ass through Europe in a very similar way. So they led an encirclement of France to the Atlantic Ocean. And the book says Germany could have won the war here in just a matter of days, if not for one man, Hitler. So Hitler, the man himself, (laughs) he was insecure, anxious. Um, He did not like the idea of his generals winning the war. He wanted to be the one to win the war. So Guderian had just captured the town of Abbeville, which cut off Allied Mm -hmm. troops in the north from their units further south and was on a tear to Dunkirk to fully encircle the British, French, and Belgian troops and cut them off from the Atlantic. If you know World War II, you know this man as well. His name's Hermann Goring. He is mm-hmm. the leader of the Luftwaffe, and he, him and Hitler were actually very, very close, but he's the head of the German Air Force. They had, so he was also worried that the generals would take away or outshine the Fuhrer. Right. So they spoke on May 20th, 1940, and at 12.45 p.m., Hitler enacted their idea. He gave the infamous halt order. So he ordered all German forces, ground forces, to stop. I mean, it's good that he did. Of but course it is. This allowed the Allied forces that were trapped to escape. So the British, French, and Belgian troops started hauling ass out of Dunkirk to evacuate because they knew they knew they were being encircled right. by German troops. So they're like, we have to get out of here. And because Hitler let them. So their idea, their big plan was they were all going to get on boats. And then Goring was going to order the Luftwaffe to attack the ships from the air. So he was going to send in fighter pilots to bomb all the escapees, which worked for like a little while, but then fog and clouds rolled in. And now the the German fighter pilots could no longer see all the boats. Do you know how easy it would have been? Do you know how they got the soldiers out of Dunkirk? Like whatever boat they could find. Literally, they were like, we need boats. And just yeah. the general populace brought boats over, picked up soldiers, and just took them back. It's incredible. They had yeah. no defenses. It would have been no. so easy for that to work. Mm-hmm. Holy crap, I didn't know that. Clouds and fog rolled in, so now German pilots can no longer see the boats, and then the British Air Force came in and kicked all the Hell yeah. German troops out of there. Hell yeah. <laughs> and the book even mentions that Guderian could only just stand and watch. 
for 10 days. The German army just stood on their ass, like sat on their asses and just watched basically all of this going on. Let me get back to my place because I was just ranting oh my for a God. second. <laughs> 10 okay, days. They were just like. Just watch. Just sitting there. And like Hitler would not let them advance forward. Like Guderian was like, please let us advance. Like we can cut them off. We can win the war right here. And Hitler's like, no. No, because I didn't mm-hmm. say so. I want to win this war. Well, I'm glad he was a, a man child. I, I am too. After 10 days, 340,000 Allied troops were able to evacuate from Dunkirk. So what was left behind was equipment, ammunition, about 80,000 French soldiers who were not able to get on a ship. But Hitler, regardless, considered this a major victory of his own accord. He's like, I did a great job, you guys. <laughs> uh, wow. Sure you did, buddy. Sure. Sure. So now... We're going to skip forward just a tad okay. to June of 1940. So this was May, end of May. Now we're in June. Okay. Little skip. So Ranka, the physiologist, mm-hmm. the military physiologist, is traveling amongst the troops, just handed out Pervitin, like confetti. I mean, he's just like Oprahing everywhere. Like, you get some Pervitin. And like, literally people went to him like, hey, man, can I get some of that Pervitin? He's like, yeah, man, here you go. And again, like he knew the, the negative side effects. But I didn't. It well, didn't he was so high on it himself that he was just so happy right. to give it, give it away. Yeah. So it got to the point. So Paris fell under German control in mid-June. Mm-hmm. And Rommel Guderian continued to haul ass around France. Like, it got to the point where Hitler didn't even believe how fast they were moving. Like, um, I think Guderian said that he was on the, like, on the Swiss border. Hitler was like, no, you have to be, like, the middle of France. And he was like, no, I'm on the Swiss border. like i'm here like they hauled ass because like the book even said like there's this one part where there's a picture like soldiers after the blitzkrieg and it said they were awake for 14 days straight basically just going fast as fuck boy oh 17 so i know the readers can't read it but um ronka was taking pictures of soldiers while they slept for some reason that was very specific where he was taking i don't know if you can see it very well it's black and white pictures Uh Okay, okay. But he was taking pictures of sleeping soldiers, and the caption is, after 17 days a week, after 17 days awake, sleeping after the Blitzkrieg. For all intents and purposes, they were awake for almost two weeks straight. Just hauling ass to the France. Think about how much strain that is on your body, how much Mm -hmm. weight those soldiers had to lose, how Mm -hmm. mentally unstable you would be at that point. Yep. Yep. They need to sleep for a week straight mm-hmm. to regain some form. Yeah. Well, and then on top of just the side effects of meth itself, bombarded right. with the ex- the physical and mental exhaustion that's being had by the soldiers. Like, it culminated not well. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> As you can expect. So, and then it got to the point where higher up, like older higher ups that were taking Pervitin started feeling the toll more... Right. Uh, explicitly. So, like, several were starting to have, like, cardiac arrest. One died of a heart attack. More collapsed. But Ranka continued to ignore those negative side effects, continued to p- push Pervitin on the troops, even though he himself was dependent on it at this point and knew its dangers. Yeah, he's just slowly dying from it. Yeah. And the British Army later started utilizing Benzedrine so an Italian newspaper discussed that there was a German courage pill 
that was considered vital to their success. So the British army started take, like having the soldiers take Benzedrine, which is an amphetamine, but it has much fewer side effects mm-hmm. than pervitin and, you know, isn't meth. Right. <laughs> it's a stimulant that is not fucking meth. Right. So, so Conti, who's the health fear lead of the health office of the Third Reich. So he comes back and he's continuing his fight against Pervitin. Um, the entire country of Germany was using about a million doses a month of Pervitin. Like, this shit is crazy. And in June 1941, Conti made the drug subject to the Reich opium law. And that it outlawed any kind of opiates because of, like, the anti-Semitism, blah, blah, blah. Right. This did not lead to a reduction in its use. <laughs> of course it didn't. Um, so Conti was even trying to create a records who became of soldiers who became drug dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you were saying, like soldiers could not continue like this habit of staying awake for two weeks at a time, like without it having some kind of negative effect. Right. So Conti kept was starting to try to track those soldiers who were dependent on pervitin, but those soldiers did not have good outcomes because remember the laws, like they were sent to concentration camps or sterilized or euthanized. Right. And the German army didn't want their soldiers being euthanized. So um, this is not funny. In response, the German army started recruiting people from Conti's office and sending them to the front lines to fight. Oh, my God. Just backstabbing bullshit is going on. Good Lord. There's just so much batshit stuff. So we're about to... So I have, like, three sections. Like, I know, like... I did organize things into headings because it's very helpful. Mm-hmm. So this is, we're about to start three out of four headings. Do you have any questions <laughs> or any comments before we continue? Meth is bad. <laughs> yes, I, it's I'm very just, bad. I don't even know like where to begin with my thought process on all this. Where it's obvious that some people were trying to look after the soldiers, and I understand that. War is a a thing where sometimes you have to make sacrifices that you don't want to do, but the mm-hmm. absolute disregard for human life, even when they're on your side from the Nazis, mm-hmm. is appalling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it gets worse, honestly. Like, and that was kind of why I had the trigger warning at the yeah. beginning. And I'll get it very, very briefly towards the end, but I'll get into it. But yeah, they have no regard for human life at all. At all. If, Whether it's their own people or yeah. if it's their, their enemy, quote-unquote. Yeah. I mean, if if you didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes, you didn't fit within disabled. society. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they, they targeted every minority, and it's really sad. So, my next section is called The Higher-Ups Were All High. <laughs> <laughs> because they were. Because they were. So... We're going to backtrack a little bit. So in 1936, so before Mm -hmm. like the official start of the war, a doctor named Theodore Morell became Hitler's personal physician. Okay. So he initially, so Hitler had been suffering from like bloating and cramps and eczema, digestion issues. So Morell started treating him with probiotics and vitamins and glucose injections and those problems cleared up very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, he was right as rain. He became his, like, the Hitler that has televised the charismatic, enig- 
enigmatic dictator. And Morel became very trusted by Hitler. So he transformed to a pretty sickly person to a seemingly very powerful, healthy person. Um, also, I added this as a side note because I didn't know where else to put it. So Hermann Göring, who we mentioned earlier, who was the leader of the Luftwaffe, was a severe morphine addict. His nickname was Moring oh. because he was so addicted to morphine. But he had had an, he was a fighter pilot in World War One, and he had an injury to his stomach. And after because of that, he became addicted to morphine. Mm. Um, so that's. He was high on morphine when he came up with a harebrained scheme at Dunkirk. So like, let's bomb the boats. Anyway, so as time went on uh, and as the war continued, Hitler became more dependent on Morel's miracle cures. Like, he would be great and then he would get sick and then Morel would have to come up with a new treatment for Hitler and he'd be great again and he'd get sick again. And Morel would have to come up with a new treatment and he'd be fine, and he'd get sick again. So it was just this continuing process for like 10 years, almost 10 years, where yeah. Morel was trying more, like, newer and newer treatment methods. So, and the book gets more into Morel as a person. There's a lot of stuff going on there, but it is interesting. It just, there's just so much. So Hitler needed frequent injections of vitamins, glucose, and whatever else Morel decided would be effective for the Fuhrer's treatment. Um, and other, other higher-ups started to become patients of morale as well. So, according to the book, leadership began to realize in 1941 that the war could not be won. But Hitler was in denial. Like, he was right. like, oh, it's fine. Everything is fine. Like, and he was really, like, not only did the higher-ups and the superiors surrounding Hitler, like, protect him from the reality of the situation, he was just in complete denial. And it only continued to get worse. Mm-hmm. And he kept becoming sick. And so he asked Morel to help him overcome his dizziness. So, and I mentioned here that the book goes into a lot of detail about Morel's different exploits. But the purpose of time, I'll summarize the gist of what happened. So basically Morel ended up acquiring factories where they would process animal parts acquired from slaughterhouses. So they would process organs and glands to produce and create steroids and hormones. And those were then used on Hitler, which is really ironic because he was a staunch vegetarian. But then he was being injected with animal parts. Okay, one, ew. Um, yeah. Like, the amount of times that glands is, like, the word glands appears <laughs> in the book. I'm just like, stop saying glands. Yeah, please stop. <laughs> I did not know Hitler was a vegetarian. He was a vegetarian. Like, staunch. Like, he did not smoke. He did not drink. He was very, very health conscious, which is ironic because he was always sick. But, like, I think, and it doesn't mention this in the book, but based on his behaviors, and especially later... It seemed like he may have had a form of OCD, mm. like contagion-related OCD. Like, he was so focused on being healthy all the time. Oh. And, like, he didn't want, like, his mistress, Eva Braun, smoking. Like, he was even like, you have to stop smoking. Bad things will happen to you. Like, it just, yeah, he was very, very health-conscious, ironically. Yeah. So, even with all these medications and injections, Hitler still continued to get sick. He suffered from intestinal issues, gas, bloating, etc. So in July of 1943, so another time jump, there is a key change in Hitler's remedy. Morel began administering Eucodol. Its main ingredient was oxycodone. 
Yeah, that'll do it. So for, so for our listeners, what does oxycodone do? So it's an opiate that targets the central nervous system, specifically in, it inhibits pain signaling and activates the body's pain relief system. So it'll like flood the body with endorphins and all that to relieve pain. So some side effects, because Hitler had probably all of these, <laughs> not all of them, but probably most of them. So constipation, abdominal pain, headaches, nausea, sleepiness, and dizziness, which he did complain about a lot. Um, opioid dependency and addiction, sure. Circulatory issues like rapid or irregular heartbeats. Psychiatric issues like anxiety, confusion, and nervousness, which he already was, and this just yeah. made it worse. Oh, no. Uh, chills, sweating, fever, muscle twitching, enlarged lymph nodes, uh, tinnitus, which is ringing in the ears, decreased fertility, impotence, menstruation problems, neurological disorders like tremors, speech problems, vertigo, abnormal walk, and others. And anaphylact- And if you are allergic, it, you can go into anaphylactic shock, um, which is when your entire face and breathing holes swell <laughs> and you can't breathe holes. anymore. <laughs> Breathing. Holes. I couldn't think of a word to like summarize all of them, but like your your nose, your tongue, your throat, your lips, like that. Those kind of yeah. all swell when you go into anaphylactic shock. The vital parts so, of breathing. Yeah, with the the three breathing holes you have, yeah, um, will swell. So upon eject- injection of the Yukadol, Hitler immediately felt much better. Of course he did. So this is a little funny. So he had a very important meeting with Mussolini later that day and was finally feeling up to it because he just gotten a big hit of oxycodone. So Mussolini, who was the leader of fascist Italy, actually wanted to have the meeting because he was talking about Italy backing out of the war. He wanted to end it. Hitler literally spoke for three hours without stopping <laughs> on how the axe on how the Axis powers could win the war. And because of this, like Mussolini literally could not get a word in. So Italy remained in the war. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I just thought that was <laughs> just can't get a word in anyway. I, I literally wrote Mussolini li- literally never got a word in during the three hours fucking LOL. <laughs> <laughs> that poor man was probably just sitting there just staring at him like... The the book says that he was literally like sitting cross-legged just dabbing his forehead with a handkerchief just impatiently listening to the to Hitler just drone. It wasn't like an excited animated talking. He was droning. For three hours without stopping. Because <laughs> he was high. He probably could have taken a nap and Hitler probably wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> no, I don't think he would have. And that, that comes from like a Secret Service agent that, and like historical records. And I just thought that was oh, that's like hilarious. one of the only funny things that happened in this whole thing. The cycle of drug use continued as Hitler became more erratic with his injections of Yucadol. It got to the point where, this is the other funny part, it got to the point where his guests and other higher-ups literally had to be high to be in the same room as him because they could not handle him when he was hopped up on Yucadol. Their drug of choice is Pervitin. So he would be high up on Oxycodone and they would all be on meth and it was the only way they could all be in the same room together. Oh. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So... And I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier. 
What's ironic is that the Nazis, who were on an anti-drug campaign before the war, were now major drug users. Like, everyone in the German, in the Nazi party, used drugs. Like, besides Leo Conti. <laughs> like, so the book states that, quote, In 1943, the Wehrmacht Central Pharmacy delivered 1,250 pounds of pure cocaine and then 130 pounds of pure heroin to the Foreign Counterintelligence Office. Most of the drugs went to Department Z, which handled the Secret Services. Most of the drugs, those, what was it, like almost 1,800, more than 1,800 pounds of drugs. Um, most of those went to Department Z, which handled the Secret Services, and Department ZF, which handled the Third Reich's finances. So Department ZF han- received half a ton of cocaine hydrochloride, which can be used as the drug, the illegal drug, or as a topical or local anesthetic. The book theorizes that the drugs were used as bribes or to obtain foreign currencies. So the the department wasn't all using the drugs. Right. But they were sending it out. Okay. So now the Nazi party was drug dealers (laughs) on top of drug users, which again is super ironic because of their campaign against drug use. So here's some more, like I said earlier, Morel, like a lot of higher ups became Morel's patients as well. So here's a couple, according to the, well, a few, according to the book, Hitler, his mistress, Eva Braun, Mussolini, many military generals, Heinrich Himmler, who was the architect of the Holocaust, uh, Japanese ambassador, General Hiroshi Oshima, and our friend Goring's wife. So Morel was so worn out that even he started turning to drug use but it was not clear, it was never recorded what drugs he was using. Right. I don't know. So now we come to July 20th, 1944. A plan was created. People were losing faith that Germany would win the war, and Hitler was largely blamed for the failure. So a coup d'etat was con- contrived. I said coup d'etat so great, and then I stumbled upon the next word I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now we have Operation Valkyrie. So, for our friends, our listeners who don't know, this was a plot to assassinate Hitler by his, by his own party. On July 20th, 1944, Hitler walked into the meeting room where he was meeting with other Nazi leaders, having just had a nice, fresh dose of Yukidol. Uh, Klaus Schenk Graf von Stauffenberg walked in with a briefcase, set it as close to Hitler as possible, and very quickly walked out the door saying that he needed to take a phone call. Uh, When he walked out of the room, someone else sat in von Stauffenberg's seat and moved the briefcase from right next to Hitler to behind a really thick table leg. At 12.42 p.m., the briefcase exploded, and four people would eventually die from their injuries from this explosion. Hitler did not die. Damn. Because the briefcase was moved from right next to him to behind a thick-ass table leg. Which shielded, like, he got, I mean, he did not come out of this unscathed. Like, he got a shit ton of splinters, um, he got scraped up, and he, both of his eardrums were burst. Damn. Um, but this assassination attempt did not succeed, unfortunately. Because of the injury to his ears, um, a man named Dr. Erwin Geising, I hope uh-huh. I said that right, he was an ear, nose, and throat specialist for the military, and he was called to treat Hitler. So his treatment of choice was a topical anesthetic 
cocaine. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, and this was applied to Hitler's nose and throat. And I don't know if they meant like inside his throat or like on top of his throat. I have no okay. idea. So the cocaine, even though it's a topical anesthetic, it was absorbed through the mucus in Hitler's nose mm-hmm. and gave him a high. Hitler thought this was great. He loved cocaine. And he would ask Gore, uh, Geisling, please give me more. <laughs> oh, my God. So he continued to ask Geising for more doses. And eventually, Geising, who had, like, some, a little medical integrity, it was like, no, I can't keep giving you these doses. Like, Morel gave Hitler whatever he wanted. Right. Because he wanted to keep his position as the Fuhrer's personal physician. But Geisling was like, no, like, I'm an actual doctor and I'm not going to keep giving you cocaine because you're addicted to it. Right. So, but Hitler was just like, please, 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 please. So Geisling was like, fine. Like, if you'll undergo a physical examination, which Hitler refused. He hated doctors. He would never, like, go through a physical. But he was like, fine, I'll go through it if I can get more of that cocaine. So he continued, I guess, the book didn't say this, but I guess he just annoyed Geising to the point where he was like, fine, here. Geising gave Hitler so much cocaine, he almost died of an overdose. Oh, my God. That would have been convenient. I know, but still, like, his own doctor (laughs) gave him so much cocaine, he almost died. Like, he went unconscious. His respiratory tract almost became paralyzed. Like, he almost stopped breathing completely. It's this, it's bat shit insane. Oh, my God. That doctor probably didn't even feel bad either. He wrote it down. (laughs) He wrote it, like, that's the only reason we know what happened is because that doctor wrote it down. Oh, my God. Uh, So, anyway, so now Hitler is speedballing. He is on cocaine and opiates. Oh, my God. So, he is complete euphoria mode. He is getting the, the intensity from the cocaine and then the, the, calmness from the the opiates the the oxycodone so he is full-on speedballing yeah and morel included a third medication called upavarin so this one it's um it is an opiate but it's non-addictive and it's mostly to treat um it's an anti-convulsive medication Mm -hmm. it's not considered addictive but it may have been hiding the toll that the drugs were starting to take on hitler's body And, I mean, he was, like, literally, there was a list that was in this book in, like, a footnote. And it was just going through, like, in alphabetical order all the different drugs that Hitler was on that was being injected into his body, like, every other day. Like, it was insane. It was, like, 80 different drugs that were just injected in his body constantly. He's just, like, a walking drug now. Here's, I don't know if you can see it, but that footnote right there? Yeah. That's the list that was just recorded by Morel. That's not a footnote. That's a no, whole it's paragraph. like half a page. Yeah. That's a whole, it's half a page in small, like, eight-point font. Oh, my God. And then the, the drugs that are italicized were the psychoactive drugs, oh which there's God. a lot. This man was a pharmacological cocktail, just walking around. So. Shaken or stirred? <laughs> <laughs> well, with that explosion, he was a little shaken up. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> so, he, Hitler was almost never sober. Right. Um, he was getting his injections basically every day. Oh and God. he lived in a straight-up fantasy land. Could you imagine being on those drugs and then becoming sober 
for a day. Yep, because he has to. That later. Oh no. <laughs> okay. It's not good. I can't. It's wait. not good. Yeah. So, he, like, being on all these drugs, he was in a straight up fantasy land because, again, he was shielded from. He could not mentally handle the truth about what was actually happening in the war. Right. He was in denial about it. Um, and then the drugs further increase his fantasy land that he was creating in his mind. So, like, the higher-ups were, like, doing their own kind of thing. And they'd be like, oh, Hitler, we did this today. And he'd be like, we'll do that. And then would be like, okay, we'll do this. And we'll keep also doing our own thing. So, and Hitler started getting more, even more and more sick as the drugs continued to take their toll. He started developing very severe tremors, in it, especially mm-hmm. in his hands. Yeah. Um, it went from, like, just a little shaking to, like, full-on shaking. And he tried to hide it. Um, and it's believed he developed arteriosclerotic Parkinson's disease. Um, and that's brought on by an immune disorder that may have been caused by all the animal parts that he was being injected with. Oh, my God. So he was being injected with all these animal hormones, which may have triggered an autoimmune disorder, which may have led to his development of Parkinson's disease. Wow. And now we're getting to the end of the war. And that's my, my heading for this last section is the end of the war. It gets bleak here. Yeah. It's this section we where we start talking about human experimentation. Yeah. We start talking about suicide and death. So if that's a topic that you don't want to listen to, skip forward. You know the end of World War Two. You you know the end of World War Two. So yeah. Like we we know it, it ends. So Germany was not doing well in the war in the last half of 1944. Paris went back into Allied hands. The Wehrmacht was in full retreat across Europe. Mm-hmm. The Americans reached the, the German border, which is not good. So the use of Puritan ramped up even more because during all this time, the Wehrmacht is still taking Puritan. But it was losing its effectiveness because as you keep taking more and more doses, it stops having the effect it previously did. Right. You're building an immunity to it. Right, exactly. So the Nazis were desperate for a new drug that would turn the tides. So a drug called DIX or D9, I couldn't tell. It's it's IX. I don't know if it's a Roman numeral oh, or not. Okay. I'll just say DIX. It was developed very quickly without proper research. This contained 5 milligrams of eucodol, 5 milligrams of cocaine, and 3 milligrams of meth. That That is the drug cocktail right there. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, and this was not tested. Like, the interactions of all these different drugs was not tested and researched. So they basically, like, came up with this and handed it to a bunch of soldiers. And were like, all right, go. Yeah. Go take this. So the soldiers were given a drug and sent off to fight. According to the book, quote, in all subjects, unpleasant disturbances occurred after taking one to two tablets. Says one of the few surviving reports. Subjects who were previously fresh and rested displayed shaky hands during a brief euphoria, and those who were already tired complained of weak knees and tautness in the muscles. A general paralysis of the central nervous system set in. The desirable euphoria immediately subsided. Decision-making power and intellect were inhibited. Energies impaired. The critical faculties diminished. Profuse perspiration followed by a feeling of hangover, a high degree of fatigue, and dejection. This sounds anything but promising. And yet DIX was administered and led to a fiasco for the Navy, end quote. It did the opposite. Yeah, because they were just throwing shit together and be like, we need to come up with a new pervitin. This this has to work. So what happened is a mini submarine was developed just very quickly. The soldiers or the sailors were given this DIX and sent to go fight in this operation in the mini subs. 
two-thirds of the pilots did not survive. Because of the drugs? That's like kind of what the book was implying is that they did not have the mental capacity to be cognizant of what was happening. And also the the submarines were just kind of thrown together as well. So I think it's a lot of different things. But the drug did not help at all. Wow. And it impaired their cognitive facilities. It made them sick. They couldn't, they were shaking and they couldn't breathe. Like it was just a whole thing. Well, could you imagine tripping in a bad way in a miniature submarine? In the middle of a war. Absolutely not. No. Um, So a miracle drug continued to be sought after, but they wanted to actually perform an experiment this time. The Navy and the SS secretly collaborated on who the experiment subjects would be. They turned their eyes to the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. So here's where we start getting into the human experimentation. Again, trigger warning. So at the Sachsenhausen concentration camp, there was what was called a shoe walking unit. And what they did is prisoners would be testing alternatives to leather soles for shoes for the Wehrmacht. So it was grueling. I mean, they would have to walk so many miles in like different terrain. An average of 20 people died a day. Oh my God. In this unit. It was awful. And they were decided to become the test subjects for the drug experiments. So on November 17th, 1944, the shoe walking unit was given 50 to 100 milligrams of cocaine pills, 20 milligrams of cocaine chewing gum, or 20 milligrams of pervitin chewing gum. And that was seven times the dosage of a pervitin pill. So the prisoners walked for like 48 hours until they collapsed from exhaustion. And there's one guy He walked 60 miles without fatigue until he collapsed, um, according to the researcher. Oh, my God. 60 miles without stopping. This experiment was deemed a success, um, and so the cocaine chewing gum was taken to this other group. So on December 7th, 1944, 5,000 young boys waited in Dresden. They were members of Hitler Youth and ranged from the ages of 10 to 16 years old. They were given uniforms and cocaine chewing gum and were instructed to enter a Seehund, which is another type of miniature submarine created by the German Navy. Um, The book says that they were basically a bag of kittens drowned. Like, a lot of these children did not survive. How old were they? Between 10 and 16 years old. Oh my god. And they were also being given insane hard drugs to keep them awake. But it was the levels that they were given were so high. So some survivors, some grown sailors, described their experiences with this chewing gum. Um, So they cited bouts of hallucination and confusion. And many of the sailors never reached their destination due to confusion or sickness or drowning. The book describes many of these boys and men as torpedo fodder. So it's just a really sad situation where, again, the Nazis don't have any kind of value on human life. They're just sending these boys out, giving them crazy amounts of cocaine and be like, okay, go fight. They're children. Yeah. Oh, that hurts my heart. It's really sad. I don't even have, I don't even have any more words. That's, no, it's really, yeah, it's really bad. Again, we're continuing this use of drugs. Um, mm-hmm. So a man named Dr. Kurt Plotner, he was stationed at the, I thought I looked this up, the Dachau concentration uh-huh. camp. And he was running his own 
experiments. Um, and so he was trying to identify truth serums. And mescaline was a major component in his experiments. So truth mescaline, serums. Yeah. Is he a wizard? <laughs> Sorry. Like, uh, that's not a thing. So he got, he got close with this. So mescaline is a psychoactive chemical that occurs naturally in Mexican peyote cactus. Okay. Um, and it induces crazy powerful hallucinations. And he would give his test subjects mescaline hidden like tea or alcohol. And once the hallucination started, he could get anything out of them that he wanted to. Like the deepest held secrets. He was, able, he was like, if you don't tell me what I want to know, this will kill you. Because they were tripping balls. Oh, my and God. And so they would tell him whatever he wanted to hear, like, all the secrets that they had. So he could not continue his experiments because um, the Americans later liberated the Dachau concentration camp. But what do you think happened to the experiment? Not destroyed. Oh, no. They were incorporated into a United States project called Project Chatter. And there's another experiment that was continued from Plotner's work. You may have heard of this one, MKUltra. That was started from Plotner's human experimentation as well. And actually, the K in MKUltra is kind of the nod to its German origins of mind control with a K. I swear to God, I am not having very patriotic feelings right now. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> no, listen, I love America, but sometimes I don't. So. Yeah, no, this is not good. And tens of thousands of people were unwillingly, unwillingly experimented on during yeah. these two projects. Oh both Project God. Chatter and MK Ultra. So we're going to take it back to Mr. Fuhrer himself. Okay. We're getting close to the end here. So Hitler later started adding Pervitin to his regiment. Oh, it only took him a couple years, but he finally caved. I know, in December of 1944, because I don't think he was still on the cocaine dosages. Um, so he started adding meth. <laughs> um, he was barely alive at this point. Like, the author described him as a frightening, drooling wreck. Like, those are his yeah, he's words. He's probably just like a walking corpse Basically. at this point. And he also, like, started requesting liver to be injected into his body. Yeah. Ew. Because he thought it was helping him, and it was not. So in February of 1945, due to targeted bombings by the Allies, the drug stores were diminishing. And in late February, Hitler started going through withdrawals because he no longer had access to mm -hmm. the cocktail that had been keeping him alive for so All long. All the things. Yeah. So he started becoming irritable, aggressive. And was no longer oblivious to the realities of the state of the world, which led to his aggression and irritability. He was no longer in his fantasy land. He, his last dopamine source became sugar. Um, and it was the only thing that he had access to that was still available. So he was eating cake and hot chocolate and like any kind of sugar because it was the only thing that could still provide him dopamine. That provides me dopamine as well. It, sugar is very addictive yeah, because it, <laughs> it really stimulates the dopamine centers in your brain. And that was all that he had left available to him was sugar. Um, his teeth started falling out. Oh, it wasn't the meth that did it. It was the sugar. Well, I think it was all of it. Yeah. Like the sugar did not help. No. But like his, his teeth started falling out. His blood. So he started 
and this is where I think like there may have been some, I don't know if it's from the drug use or maybe like an underlying anxiety disorder, but he started picking at his skin with tweezers because um, he was, he was saying like the bacteria is getting in. That sounds like a drug. That sounds like a meth thing. Remember like the yeah. meth bugs. That's what it, yeah. it reminded me of. Okay. Yeah. I think it could be that, or it could be like a manifestation of that contamination fear. Right. Because he has always had that before he started right. taking meth. Morel, his physician, was like, let's try bloodletting to try to relieve your symptoms. His blood is so thick from all of the liver injections that it literally, his blood would not bleed. It just clotted immediately. He was pale and yellow. His kidneys started failing. And his left eye was completely swollen shut. Like, he was a fucking wreck. Oh my god. With no teeth. Ew. <laughs> Ugh. And he he was, like, shaking all the time and convulsing. He could barely walk. He was, like, stooped over and hunched. Like, this was no longer the enigmatic dictator that fueled the TVs and radios of German citizens for so long. So on March 19th, 1945, Hitler ordered that all of the Third Reich's resources and basically the country of Germany be destroyed. Like, military resources, like ammunitions, um like cultural icons, like statues, like everything to be destroyed. But there literally were not the resources to carry out his plan. Like they literally did not have the means to destroy everything. April 16th, the direct assault on Berlin began by, I think, the, the Soviets. Um, Hitler fired Morel on the 21st, on April 21st, because Morel had no more drugs to give him. Uh, like there's no more. Yeah. And Morel was devastated. Like, the book said that he literally got into his plane and sobbed the entire time. Boo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so bad for him. I know. Goring fled to surrender to the Americans because he did not want to fall under Soviet hands. The Soviets and the Germans have been at war for a long time. Right. Like, and it did, was not going well. So he was like, the Americans won't immediately kill me. So Hitler and Eva Braun got married very quickly during these last few hours. She ended up committing suicide by ingesting cyanide, and Hitler shot himself in the head on April 30th, 1945. After his death, many others followed suit. Over 100,000 people around throughout Germany spontaneously committed suicide afterwards because it was considered, like, if they didn't, it would be dishonorable. So on May 8th, the Wehrmacht surrendered. Morel was tracked down but he was a shell of his former self. Like he literally could not even be used as a witness in the Nuremberg trials. And he knew all of those people because a lot of them were his own patients, but he literally could, like he was despondent and could only say like, I wish I wasn't me. That's all he could say. I, I don't even feel bad for him. No, I don't either. I don't yeah. either. Because he was useless, he was basically tossed into the streets and a half Jewish nurse took pity on him and got him to the hospital and he died May 26, 1948. I also have some other notes about other key players mm -hmm. from the story. So Goring, no, Himmler died May 23rd, 1945 by poison. And that was like Hitler had fired him and he tried to retreat and like go undercover to the Americans, but it didn't work. And then he ended up ingesting poison and committing suicide. Goring died October 15th, 1946 by poison tablet after his trial in the Nuremberg trials because he did not want to be hung or shot. His request was ignored, and so he committed suicide as well. 
and the poison was in like a jar of pomade that he had had. Um, it was like a little pill that was hidden in it. Oh. Um, and then Ronka, our, our physiology guy that was addicted to meth, um, he lived through everything. Um, he actually became a professor of physiology at the University of Erlangen and was a director of the Institute of Physiology at that university as well. He died unexpectedly in 1959 of arterial thrombosis while at his desk. <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end. Wow. Well, I think I'm a little flabbergasted. <laughs> That's how I felt, like, while reading this book. Like, I have, like, just post-it notes. I was like, well, this happened. Well, this happened. Yeah. I knew. I knew that Hitler's army was on meth. I've mm-hmm. seen it a couple times. One of my... I might be getting the story a little wrong. It's been a long time. But I do remember there was a story, I believe, that it was... One of Hitler's troops was actually resting one night. And they thought that... I think it was the British were invading them at the time. But they were all tripping balls at the time. So they were, like, shooting into the trees and stuff. Well, they ran out of ammo. And then the British showed up. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't... Wow. I watched that on a documentary a couple years ago, and that just kind of stuck with me because, like, you were so high. <laughs> yeah, it was not good. And, like, no. no one in Germany really got out of, like, got out of this unscathed. No. Um, and, you know, what's wild is if they had just not use the drugs they could have won i mean debatable i mean i just feel like it it hindered them so much at at least at the end yeah no at the end it was very because they had grown gotten this um dependence on drugs but like as the allies were moving through germany like the temmler factory which was the main producer of pervitin it was bombed like many key like pharmaceutical locations were bombed, so they could no longer produce pervitin at the rates that they had been for the soldiers. So that's why they're like, we have to find out this new miracle drug yeah. that will give us the same output that pervitin did, because they were all in denial. Like not all of them, a lot of the military was still in denial. I'm like maybe we can still turn this around. Right. I think the only ones that weren't in denial were the ones that um, coordinated Operation Valkyrie. But even then, it was like, if we assassinate Hitler, like, we can, co- we can come into charge. Like, we can be in charge, and we can lead this war how it needs to be right. fought. Right. Yeah. And the Nazis will win. So it's just... Yeah, I didn't realize... Like, I think I'd heard that, like, Hitler was on drugs. So I think it's mentioned a little bit in, like, his biographies. But in the, like, Norman Oler, the author of this book, said that, like, most biographers don't even mention it. Or they do it in passing, but not to this extent. Well, think about Um, all the just movies in pop culture that we see. Not documentaries. I'm talking about, like, movies about World War II. Um, mm -hmm. Hitler is always depicted as a big, you know, who he was in the beginning of the war. Mm -hmm. And the man he was at the end of the war was a totally different man, but they never mm-hmm. depict that decline in him physically, 
characteristically anything like that. See, because I mm-hmm. didn't know it was that bad. I knew it had gone downhill, but I didn't know it was that bad. Well, and even like Morell and um, Himmler and Goring, like in their notes, like even when Hitler was on the decline, they kept saying like, oh, he's a picture of health. Oh, he's so healthy. Like, I, I'm jealous. Like, if only I could be close to him and some of his health could rub, rub off on me. Like, and I'm not even exaggerating. Like, this man was clearly very sick, mentally, obviously, yeah. and physically, and super on drugs and drugs that were actively harming him. And they were just like, nope, this is fine. It's fine. Yeah. Like, just full on lying to... Because I think Himmler, I think he was also the... Um, not only was he was he the architect of the Holocaust, he was also, like, a major propaganda officer. So he had to, like, keep, like, the people motivated and being like, oh, no, the Hitler's great, he's fine, yeah. like, this war will continue and Germany will be all-powerful and blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. How different do you think the world would be if they had just let that motherfucker into art school? If they just let him in. I don't know. Like, <laughs> he wouldn't have gone to world and fought in World War One. That's true. He got poisoned by gas in World War One, mm-hmm. and it just went downhill from there. It did. And I don't know if it was a poison or if this is just who he was, but he wanted power. He yeah. wanted control. And he, at the beginning, he was a charismatic enough person to obtain it. Yeah. Just when he had it, he couldn't handle it. So yeah. I, I don't know. I actually, I really don't know. And, like, this wasn't really a biography on Hitler himself. Right, of course. Um, like, it mentions him, but it doesn't talk about, like, his backstory. So I don't, like, I know kind of the gist of it, but I don't have, like, all of that key information yeah. about how specifically he was able to come into power, like, the, the, the details about it. Like, I know yeah. he did, like... There's a whole thing, like, he would, like, gather people in the beer house, and he, like, convinced the chancellor to, like, step down and stuff. Like, as yeah, far as I, know, I I could be very wrong, but... I am very glad that a book like that exists, because I feel like it's a topic that, like you said, isn't talked about enough. Mm-hmm. And I feel like true stories like that, um, along with testimonies from actual people who have gone through addiction and things like that are key in stopping, you know, drug epidemics and stuff like that. Because if mm-hmm. there's so many things that could have gone differently or wrong yeah, had they, or, you know, just differently in general, had the drugs not been used. And I think, and I don't know if this is intentional or if it's just because, like, a lot of the notes and records and stuff were, like, encrypted or just not kept very well. Like, uh, Oler said that he had to go, like, Morell's notes themselves were in, like, four different locations. Um, mm-hmm. And they were very, they either couldn't even read them at all because his handwriting was so atrocious. Or, like, he would use, like, weird abbreviations or, um, like, acronyms or symbols. And, like, it was just very hard to understand. But... I think also, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I think when people realize, like, how addicted to drugs the German military was, it kind of delegitimizes, in a way, like, the prowess of the German military. Yeah. Like, they may not have been as successful or achieved as much as they did without the use of such a stimulant as methamphetamine, 
And so when you start incorporating that, even though it's important to know, so we can learn from those mistakes, like the German army was very feared in the early days of the war. Right. And when you're just like, oh, but they were just on meth, it really delegitimizes right. how scary it was. So I wonder if that could be another reason why it's just not really talked about that much. Yeah. I don't know. That's just kind of an idea I had. So my sources, like I said, it's Blitzed Drugs in the Third Reich by Norman Oler. I also used some health websites to get more information about, mm. like, the effects of the drugs. The book talks about it as well, but, like, National Institute of Health, um, very well, VeryWellHealth.com. I really couldn't find information about, like, what oxycodone actually does to you. Yeah. That was hard to find. Time Magazine and Britannica.com, as always. Um, I love the Britannica Encyclopedia. I do, too. Um... Yeah, so I didn't have that many sources because most of it, again, came from this book. But, again, highly recommend. There's so much more in this book. I did not include, like, more more detail, more information, more just bash. Like, do you believe me when I said this was just bash uh, shit insane? That's literally how I felt with the Battle of Athens book. Like, mm-hmm. I want everyone to go read it because I didn't even touch on all of the things from, those, mm-hmm. uh, from that book in those episodes. So I feel mm-hmm. that it's like... We, we don't have enough time to sit here and go through everything. No. Like, unless we just want to do, like, a whole, like, series on yeah. these things. Which, that takes a lot of time and effort. It I'm does. lazy. <laughs> I just get too obsessed with topics, apparently, so. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, the last few episodes we've been pushing, like, an hour and a half, so it's fine. It's fine. Everything. You love the melodious sounds of our voices. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, I hope. Uh, you liked the couple just straight hours worth of Battle of Athens because... See, I did. I listened... So it aired with our release schedule and our production schedule. Like, it released today, the day that we're recording. And I, I listened to it. And it was really good. And I enjoyed it. Part I, two released today. I haven't listened to it all the way. Um, again, only because I think I've listened to it like 14 times <laughs> mm-hmm. while That's fair. editing. I did listen to it in fast forward one time all the way through, <laughs> which is just hilarious to see, to hear our little chipmunk voices Love talking that. about dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Great. All right. It's great. Well, it's late both of our times but even yes. later your time so i'm going to wrap it up here um you can follow us on instagram at ill-equipped history we have a facebook page ill-equipped history podcast yeah group or just no group it's a group <laughs> i can never remember it's a group okay. should i make a page too so like non-group members can post if they're like whatever i don't know we'll talk about yeah. it yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really um, know the difference an... between the two. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. Um, we have an email. Uh, if you have any corrections or ideas or feedback for us, you can email us at illequippedhistory at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And please... If you want, leave us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to us. We would greatly appreciate it and get feedback yeah. that we can use to inform how we provide to you and other people can see how much you love us because obviously you all love us <laughs> uh, like share it, I think you know share with your yeah. friends 
Subscribe if you would like. Subscribe, like it. Um, don't do drugs. Don't do it. Don't do no, drugs. Not, not good for your brain. Drink beer. No drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry these last two episodes is just like, beer, drugs, beer, drugs. I know. We didn't even... We didn't even plan to have these episodes together. It was just like, oh, we're going to talk about just substances. It's because it's we have the same brain. We've said it a million it's, times and I'll say it a million times true. again. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and I'm staying out of World War II for a while because I feel like like four out of six episodes I've covered. Listen. I've just been about World War II in some way and I'm just like, okay. Every <laughs> single topic that I've just found in the wild, I'm like, oh my God, I want to do that one. It's a ship. <laughs> I like boats. Become pirate. <laughs> You're almost there. Just start calling me Moana, cause I'm gonna be out there in my boat <laughs> on the ocean. <laughs> just cause it calls me. Okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> That's so funny. My mamaw even sent me one. Apparently, there's an abandoned ship in Kentucky. I was like, oh, and apparently it was in a movie, and I'm like. Oh, I've done too many ships. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh boy. No. All right. We'll we'll end it here now. Yeah. <laughs> After almost two hours. <laughs> oh my God! Seriously? Yeah. Oh Jesus Christ. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's fine. All right. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Don't do drugs. <laughs>